0: good morning everybody morning 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 we are uh six classes in to our old testament survey and uh just by way of briefest reminder the intention of this series is to walk through these books of the old testament and ultimately to to better equip us to more profitably read these books and um I am not going to lie. First and Second Samuel, which is our topic this morning, Sound sounds a little odd. Sorry. Uh, first and Second Samuel, which is our topic this morning, are some of my favorite books in the Old Testament, and I am 95% sure I wrote way too much this morning. So, uh, in the interest of time, uh, we're going to pray and jump into things. So, let's go to God together. Oh, Lord, thank you for the opportunity, for the pleasure it is to dig into your word this morning, particularly these books. We we thank you and we praise you for your faithfulness to us today in preserving your word and in revealing yourself to us in the pages of scripture. And may we listen this morning with open hearts and open minds. May You guard the words that I say, Lord, that they might be edifying, not be glorifying to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray, Father. Amen. All right. Well, I trust everyone has a handout. If not, they are back there near the sound podium desk thingabobber, whatever you want to call it. Um, But the very first thing that we want to cover is, as we always do, some preliminary matters about the books themselves. And um, in this class, you are going to hear me probably refer to these two books as either books, plural, or book, singular, and that's because uh, in the um, Hebrew Bible, the books of Samuel is really the book of Samuel. It's one book in two parts. It's not until the Septuagint that we actually divide this up into two separate books, so I'm not making a mistake. You kind of look at it either way. Um, but as we relate to authorship, um, these these books historically are attributed to the prophet Samuel. But there is a small problem with that. Does anyone want to guess as to what that problem is? He does die! He does die. Yes! Yes! Um, and not like Moses at the very, very end of a book, he dies in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. And so if you do a chapter count... Um, that means about 55 to 60% of 1st and 2nd Samuel is written after Samuel dies. So, unless God gave him one heck of a prophetic vision, um, the book was finished by somebody else. Um, now, Jewish history, or sorry, uh, uh, traditional history. Um, uh, a Jewish view in the subject attributes the books to Samuel, to the prophets Nathan, and the prophet Gad. And the scriptural testimony for that would be found in 1 Chronicles 29.29. Um, it's a little loose, but it says, Now the Acts of King David, and bear in mind the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, these are, these are overwhelmingly about King David. But the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer and the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and the chronicles of Agad. So there's an argument from inference if these three men spent a lot of time writing about David, then surely the books in the Old Testament that are about David would be written by them as well. It makes sense that they would have contributed to that. Um, Now, that... Could make us uncomfortable and so far in the series when we started out we had the first five books of the Old Testament Those were directly attributed to to Moses, but as we've gone on It's been harder and harder to attribute uh, a specific author to the books. I think last week uh, Tim was O for three um This week, I think we've got pretty good evidence for uh, who wrote these ones. But as we go on, we're going to see over and over again. We're not really sure, and in some cases, we're not sure when they were written either. Um, and so I just want to spend two minutes two minutes on a brief excursus on that because I realize that could be an uncomfortable point it could be a disquieting point Um, so I think it's important as we continue on the series that we just re-emphasize that ultimately the God gives us comfort in the New Testament about the reliability of everything we're reading in the Old Testament even if we're not entirely sure who wrote it or when and to that point, if you look at your handout, uh, this is a 2b excursus. Um, I listed a bunch of verse references there. The first two are kind of the tried and true ones that we typically go to. Uh, 2 Peter one twenty-one, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, nothing was written that was not written um, except by the Holy Spirit. Or 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So those are those are pretty strong testimonies. But one that is worth looking at just very briefly, if you're inclined, is in Luke 11. It's Luke 11 verses 49 to 51. Um, and if you want to turn there, great. I will read it. But Luke 11, 49 to 51 This is a passage that we don't often go to, I think, uh, in the context of uh, the Old Testament inspiration, but it is worth looking at. These are the words of Jesus, um, and he's specifically speaking to Pharisees and lawyers. He is rebuking them, and he says, "'Therefore also the wisdom of God said, "'I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, "'so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world "'may be charged against this generation.'" And then verse 51, this is the important one. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So verse 51, this generation is going to be charged and held guilty from the blood of Abel all the way to the blood of Zechariah. Does anyone, this is not a softball, does anyone happen to know where in the Old Testament Zechariah died? Don't blame you. I didn't either. Uh, it's uh, it's Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles twenty four. In point of fact, um, now last week Tim had give a give a little handy uh, uh, chart breakdown that showed the um, breakdown of the scriptures as we have it today in our Bibles versus what uh, was in the existence at Jesus' day. The order of the Bible um, has changed over time, at least in terms of the Old Testament. Does anyone remember or have it? Uh, and happened to want to throw out what was the last book in the Old Testament in the Bibles of Jesus' day? This is, this is a trick question. It's, it's Second Chronicles. It's Second Chronicles. It was the last book in the Old Testament canon at the time of Jesus' day. So when he says the blood of Abel, which takes place in Genesis, to the blood of Zechariah in Second Chronicles, which is the last book in the Bible in his day, he is bookending the entirety of the Old Testament. He's basically saying every prophet, from the first one to the last one, is going to be charged against this generation. And that only works if... Jesus is viewing these people as actual people who lived, and the witness in the Old Testament about them being an accurate, reliable witness. So in this statement, Jesus is essentially authenticating everything that happens between these two bookends in the Old Testament. Um, We could look at other places. Uh, One in your notes we're not going to turn to is Mark 12, 26. That is a passage, though, where Jesus is so convinced of the perfection of the Old Testament that he argues with the Sadducees on the basis of grammar. He makes a point based on a tense of a verb. So what we see is this replete New Testament witness that the Old Testament is reliable, it is accurate, it is perfect, um, and we shouldn't lose any sleep whether 2 Samuel chapter 16 was written by Samuel or Nathan or Gad. At the end of the day... It's all the Word of God and we can rely on it. Questions, comments or concerns? Smoking <laughs> Not canonized it, it's if you were to well not that they had like a compiled Bible, but the order of the Canon in Jesus' day, the last book was Second Chronicles. Oh. Just the listed order, listed order, if that makes sense. How they organize the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, not necessarily the last book written, but simply the last book in the order, just like if you opened up our Old Testament, we have a last book as well. Other questions? Does that make sense? Okay. That um, it was, it was a little bit of a, of a rabbit trail, but again, it's going to keep coming up, and I definitely want to make sure that you know, as we go through this, no one is disquieted or, or concerned about um, you know, authorship or dating, um, because I think we're going to get increasingly vaguer as the, uh, as the weeks roll on. Um, okay, moving on then to dating. So the period of time in which the events in First and Second Samuel are covered uh, is eleven twenty B.C. to nine seventy one B.C. And it covers a little over a hundred years, um, eleven twenty B.C. to nine seventy one. Um, if it's written by those three men, this is obviously written in stages. Um, Samuel would have written his piece first uh, with the other guys kind of uh, completing later. So we can assume, I think, since these are all contemporaries, um, that the book was written probably, to- at least completed towards the end of that time frame, sometime after 971, um, but but done in stages. Now, in terms of the purpose of the book, I um, I have a very long sentence there for you in your notes, Um, but essentially the purpose of this book is to recount the history of Israel from Samuel to David as Israel transitions from rule by judge to a monarchy with the culmination of the story being the establishment of David as king, a type of Israel's perfect king who is himself promised to Israel through God's covenant with David. That is the intent of these two books, and um, hopefully as we go through this, and we're gonna spend the bulk of our time walking through this book together, um, hopefully that that, that becomes clear. Um, Now, this is normally where I would outline the books, and uh, I found usefulness in sort of doing a very simple outline. Um, it helps folks to sort of remember uh, because fast forward two years from now, if I had 17 points, you probably wouldn't remember what the 17 points are. Um, so if you wanted something just really simple, really pithy, easy to remember, you can think of 1st and 2nd Samuel around the names of three men. Samuel, Saul, and David. Samuel, Saul, David. In a sense, these books are organized around the leadership of these three men. The first 10 chapters are First Samuel, is all about Samuel. Um, the uh, chapters 11 through uh, 15 of 1st uh, Samuel are all about the reign of Saul and then after that basically 16 through the end of 1st Samuel and all of 2nd Samuel is focused on David so the the leadership the 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 lives of these three men is really sort of the easy way of remembering what happens in these two books now, that isn't quite a fair or nuanced or accurate summary in a lot of ways, so we're going to look at it a little bit more in detail. If you were to open up your handout and look at section 3, B through G is essentially the breakdown. So I put uh, chapter, book, and chapter references on each one of those, um, but this is, this is the, the slightly more nuanced summary of the book. Um, there are three in 1 Samuel and three in Second Samuel. And so six in total, but that's the structure of the book that we're going to walk through this morning. But as we do that, uh, there is a term that's also in your notes that I want to define, and it's this this concept of divine theater. Divine theater. Now, if you've never heard that term before, I wouldn't blame you. I made it up. Um, I'm not sure there is a term to describe this. Uh, at least I haven't come across it yet. Um, but the idea is that at times in the scriptures old and new testament god uh specifically arranges events in order to make a point um it's like using history to make an exclamation mark is kind of the idea behind divine theater and this is different than uh, editorializing so like in the book of acts for example luke had to pick certain things that he was going to talk about and not talk about there are churches that were really important in early church history that aren't mentioned in the book of acts luke um, had an organizing principle and he eliminated certain actual events from consideration and focused on other actual events. Moses does the same thing in the book of Genesis. This is different. This is this is not so much a, an author, even an inspired author, making editorial decisions about what, what co- uh, content to cover. This is God arranging history in order to make a point. Um, a New Testament example of this would be Ananias and Sapphira. Um, Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts are... Uh, Ultimately, in a very spectacular fashion, uh, uh, executed by God for lying in the context of giving money to the church. And uh, I'm willing to bet money that there are people in this room today who this week, at some point in time, probably told a lie and were not struck down by it. Um, And yet, that happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Why? Well, the, the answer is God is making an emphatic point in and through their lives about holiness in the new covenant community. He is using actual events to make an emphatic point. Um, And there's examples of this in the Old Testament, one of which, which is really important for our story, Uh, Tim alluded to it last week, is in Joshua 7, specifically the story of Achan uh, and Achan's sin. And uh, since that is so important, actually, in the context of the book of First and Second Samuel, and even the book of Judges, um, just by way of recap, um, as Israel is going into Canaan, as they're beginning to uh, uh, assault the, the land, God puts certain things under the ban. He tells them that when you go in and you take over, you know, city X, everything, everything has to be put to death. This is not something, you're not keeping this, I don't want you to be polluted, get rid of all of it. And Achan does not do that. He covets what he sees. He ultimately steals it secretly. He lets himself be polluted as a result. And God's execution of justice was swift against him. And again, I see Achan as an exclamation point. He is a picture, an illustration to Israel Um, about where it is that they're supposed to be going and what they're supposed to be doing and the importance of heeding God. And in fact, uh, it's like God is giving a signpost in Israel. As you come into the land, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted by their women, by their idols, by their way of life. And you've got two choices. Obey me or go after what how these people are living you have got two choices and one's going to end in blessing and one is going to end in judgment Achan is a signpost for Israel he is a deliberate special warning and in the context of history my goodness if Israel had heeded this it would have saved generational suffering as as um, Tim was going through the book of Judges what Judges is is essentially a generational repeating of what Achan did Israel comes into the land and they follow Achan's example. Rather than keeping themselves aloof and unpolluted, they chase after the idols. They chase after the things, the people's customs in the land. They're polluted and they go through a cycle of idolatry, oppression, repentance, and deliverance for 300 years. Um, Achan was a special warning orchestrated by God to make a point about what not to do in order to keep Israel safe. And in the same way, we're going to see, I think, and hopefully I prove this, uh, that a lot of what happens in First and Second Samuel is a particular picture to Israel and subsequent generations about the kingdom of God. God so orchestrates events to become a special message for us not just in you know just kind of the story of what happens but so much of the story is specifically orchestrated to make a point about the coming Messiah and about the kingdom I hope that'll be clear as we go through if it's not please hold me accountable Um, but I'm going to go on a limb and ask if there's any questions on that before we jump into the story Mm -hmm. mercifully no okay thank you Um, let's jump in and uh, again, hopefully this whole uh, concept of divine theater will be clear as we go through, but if not, raise your hand. Um, and I have to say, as we go through these books, I- I'm going to be doing a just a distasteful disservice to all of the content that's in here. I'm going to circle back at this on the application, but these books are rich, they're entertaining, they're really just fantastic reads, um, and I'm going to be scratching the surface as I go through them. So... Um, but as we jump into the book, the first section there, 1 Samuel chapter 1 through 10, uh, is entitled From Judges to Monarchy. And the first 10 chapters really are um, essentially the story of the leadership of Samuel. They cover his miraculous birth, his reign as a judge, and ultimately his presiding over the selection of king in Israel. Um, there's a little bit of a rabbit trail-ish um that happens when um, Israel goes to war with the Philistines and they lose the Ark of the Covenant um, and then the Ark spends a chapter or two tormenting the Philistines. It's the story of you know uh, tumors and, and those sorts of things. It's a really interesting story. It feels kind of like a tangent as you read through the book, but it's not. It's ultimately there, I think, to remind us that what israel was doing um when they lost the ark again this is a continuation of the story of judges they had fell into superstitious idolatry and god was punishing them the ark was not lost because uh dagon the god of the philistines was stronger the ark was lost because god was punishing israel it's a reminder in the story at the very beginning that god is in control god is sovereign and everything that we're seeing here is orchestrated by him um, but again, it's also the story of Samuel. And so it's, uh, you know, his, his reign as a judge, his deliverance of Israel from the Philistines, um, after that arc story. And then we, we kind of fast forward to chapter eight and when we get there, we see Israel making what is ultimately a very sinful, idolatrous ask for a king. Um, now a monarchy is not a bad thing. Uh, we are ruled over by the king jesus um so monarchy's not bad um and there's indications all the way back into genesis that monarchy was always where israel was going to head um, but israel's ask for a king was ultimately based on fear they were electing to trust in the power of human might rather than god for safety and they neglected to understand that their oppression by the philistines and that of their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents was because of their sin and not because of any deficiency in the organizational structure of Israel. Um, In that story, God warns them they're making a bad choice, yet they demand a king regardless, and then God says, okay, and he selects a man named Saul to be king of Israel. And that is one really emphatic point that is worth making. God selects Saul, and he himself is making a point in the selection of Saul. Um, and just to emphasize that point to beat that horse. It's not like Saul steps up and he, you know, fights a battle and says, "I'm now king." It's not as if you know he steps up and the people by acclamation say, "Oh, that guy should be our king." No, they, they ask for a king, and God, for two chapters, hammers home the point that He is the one who selected Saul, and so. In the selection of Saul, we see some things that are absolutely important and not coincidental to the story. Uh, for example, Israel is making this sinful ask out of fear. Well, it turns out Samuel's a bit of a coward himself. Fear is a repeated theme with Samuel. They ask for a king, um, I'm sorry, in Saul. They ask for a king in fear and unbelief, and so they get a fearful man who does not trust God um another kind of not coincidental fun fact about Saul is he is from the tribe of Benjamin and when Tim last week went through the book of Judges one of the things he highlighted is towards the end of that book there is an Israelite tribe who is acting in very Sodom-like fashion does anyone hint hint want to guess as to what tribe that was it was Benjamin yes gold gold points um yeah, it, Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and what, what God seems to be doing here is, is, is sort of making a, an explicit point of continuation from all the bad things Israel was doing in the book of Judges um, in and through Saul. Saul is a continuation, almost a, a personification of the issues of sin in Israel. He is a continuation of the same problems that have been plaguing Israel for centuries. Um, And none of this is a coincidence. God is doing something special here. By the time we get to Saul's reign, um, God, in response to an unbelieving ask of the people, is setting up a king that A, Israel deserves, B, a king after their own heart, and those words will be important, and C, a king that represents how they have been living. Saul is a living picture of Israel's idolatry and fearful unbelief. Questions? Comments? I know I'm going fast, but there's just so much stuff to cover here. Um, I'll try to slow down. But uh, any any comments, questions, observations so far? Anything confusing? I hope not. But let me know. All right. Moving on then. Um, so the next section is called The Sins of Saul. It's uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11 through verse 15. That should be 3C in your outline um, now, what's interesting is that Saul is technically king. If I can, you know, use the crown analogy, he's going to have that shiny piece of metal on his head from chapters 11 all the way to the end of the book in, in chapter 31 when he dies. Um, but his time as king is emphatic only in these, these five or so chapters. Um, and in fact, by the end of these chapters, he will have lost both the dynasty and the anointing of God. Um, he will have essentially had the kingdom taken from him uh, in chapter 15 and if anyone is confused as to how he can have the kingdom taken from him but not actually stop being king many 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 years later as he dies that would be a fun question for you to ask (laughs) Uh, um, but ultimately what chapters 11 through 15 are about is Saul's time as king and specifically how he loses the kingdom Um, It's a record of his uh, and his son Jonathan's military uh, conquests of the Philistines. Um, But there's really two stories in here that are emphatic. And that is uh, the two sins that Saul commits that cause him to lose the kingdom. Uh, The first one of those is in chapter 13. Chapter 13, um, specifically uh, verses 8 to 14, which I'll read small parts of. But the gist is pretty simple. Um, the Philistines, who are the big enemy in First and Second Samuel, they are assembling to attack. In fact, their assembling to attack is what made Israel ask for a king in the first place. They and another country were poised to invade. Israel got scared. They asked for a king. And so they got a king. Philistines are ready to invade. Um, and Samuel... Tells Saul, apparently, we're not entirely sure where it may be a reference in chapter 10, but he tells Saul, wait seven days, and then Samuel's going to appear, he's gonna offer some sacrifices, and they can they can do what they need to do with the Philistines. Um, But Samuel appears to be late. I say appears because it's kind of debatable whether he is or isn't but he appears not to show up on time and the people start fleeing Saul they get scared and so they start abandoning him and Saul fearful king as he is decides I got to do something and so he gathers the people and he offers a burnt sacrifice himself and the second he's done with that just as he finishes the offering, Samuel shows up and demands to know what exactly it is that Saul has done. And in verses 11 to 12, Saul explains his rationale. He says, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and they did not come, and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering What a guy, right? I mean, he's just just a a banner of faithfulness there. Um, And of course, Samuel uh, Mm -hmm. lauds him and says, you did a great job. No, in verse 13, he says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you and so this is the first instance the first main thing that saul does in a sinful way to cause him to lose the kingdom Um, ultimately at a minimum he's acting in sinful fear he disobeyed an explicit command and saul should not have been authorized to offer any burnt offerings to god Um, that was not his purview as king that was a priestly function and so probably a a trifecta of sin Um, but notice the the emphasis people are scattering samuel's afraid he's got to act and so he does something he acts in sin out of fear Um, as a result of this instance god doesn't take the kingdom away from him personally but he does remove the dynasty from uh, saul in other words you may still be king saul but your kids are not going to follow after you you'll be the last king in your name is kind of the the punishment Uh, fast forward just two chapters and we get to chapter 15 and the second issue Um, and this is another sort of uh, interesting callback to Achan and to the book of Judges because out of the blue, literally, God decides it's time to punish the nation of Amalek Um, and he issues a command that is very, very similar to the command that he gave Israel when they went into the land. In uh, 1 Samuel 15.3 God tells Israel to go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. He is very, very explicit in this command. It is hard to misunderstand what God says here. He doesn't say, go destroy all the good stuff. He doesn't say, go destroy the the city. Those could be potentially uh, subject to misunderstanding. No, he lists out in exhaustive detail everything that is supposed to be destroyed. When the time comes, however, while Saul does go out and beat uh, the the nation of Amalek, he decides that he is going to spare the Amalek king. Not only that, but 1 Samuel 15.9 also tells us that Saul decided to spare, quote, The best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calf and the lamb and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, though, they devoted to destruction. So Saul very clearly disobeys this command, and again we see that he was motivated by fear. When Samuel shows up and asks him, What did you do again? uh, uh, Saul tells Samuel that he only disobeyed because the people wanted the good things. And he was scared of what they might do to him if he stopped them from taking them. Um, And so at this point in time, this is obviously a wrong thing. And so God tells uh, uh, Saul through Samuel that he himself is having the kingdom ripped away from him. And this is where, um, well, it's actually, actually in chapter 13 it happens, but ultimately God is going to be given the kingdom to a man, quote, after God's own heart which will ultimately be David. But as I mentioned, what God's command here in terms of the, the kingdom of Amalek is, it's, it's essentially the same command that he gave the nation of Israel as they were coming into the land. This is Achan's sin all over again. God specifically commanded the destruction of Amalek, and Saul and the people decided to pollute themselves with contraband instead. And you know, going back to this this concept of divine theater, this this all does have the air of being specifically orchestrated. I mean, out of literally nowhere, God decides to uh, punish the nation of Amalek. He decides to punish them in a way that is analogous to uh, what was happening in the land. And by the way, when I say out of, out of the blue, I don't mean it was an arbitrary decision. I mean, God could have done this at any point in time. He could have done it when Saul was judge and was leading the people. He could have waited until David becomes king. I mean, he could have done this at any point in time. But he chose specifically in this moment under King Saul to ask Israel to do something that was analogous to... Aikinson, and we've already made that, that, that notion, that that uh, um, connection between the book of Judges and and um, uh, in this book. And so ultimately God commands Saul to follow in the footsteps of Joshua, but instead the people, with Saul being heavily complicit, instead again follow the example of Achan and the example of their fathers and grandfathers and Judges. Um, Saul... Being the king of Israel, he was—he's the king that Israel deserved. The king that was a continuation of the same bad-hearted things that they had been doing since they came into the land, and so it's not surprising that we see Saul repeating ultimately the sin of Achan. And what this example teaches us, and I think what God is ultimately trying to you know be, uh, make as a, as a as a clear signpost, as a picture, an illustration for everyone, is that. This is a sin that was committed by the people with a king who was too weak and unbelieving to stop them. Under Saul, Israel is still committing the same sorts of mistakes that they had committed generationally. The change in government has not delivered them. It has not made them better. um, It has not led to new outcomes. And what we're meant to see here under the reign of Saul ultimately is that what Israel needs is not simply a king. They don't need to be ruled over uh, under a different structure or with a, with a mighty man. What they really need is a man after God's own heart, a righteous ruler. What they need to curb the worst intentions of the people, to call them back to God, to hold them accountable, to tell them no, devote those things to destruction, follow, turn aside from your, your sinful lust and follow God, what they need is a righteous king which is no surprise then that in the very next chapter chapter 16 we're introduced to david and the rest of first samuel and all of second samuel focuses on him does that make sense questions comments do you guys see the, the sort of the narrative flow and and kind of what god is doing in and through the reign of saul as it relates to david yes okay i was i I would have accepted head nods but a but a verbal yes is even better okay um so uh, beating a dead horse a little bit saul exists i think to point us to the need for the right type of king and again uh starting in first samuel 16 we see that type of king in david um, now, in these chapters, 16 to 31, big section, I titled it The Rise and Persecution of David um, because there, th- th- there's not really an easy way of breaking this down. Um, we see David go from shepherd to anointed king to war hero to refugee in the span of these 15, 16, 17, I can't do math, chapters. Um we also, by contrast, see Saul descend uh, into greater sin and even a form of madness, I think. Um... But again, I titled it Rise and Persecution of David because those are sort of the patterns that we see. Um, There are things in this chapter set that are helpful and important uh, insofar as David is going to become king. Again, he starts off as the shepherd, the youngest child of his family, uh, an overlooked kid. In fact, as um, Samuel comes to to go and ultimately anoint someone in uh, his father Jesse's household as king. They don't even invite him to the party. He's out there, you know, uh, doing a shepherd thing out in the field. So he's sort of this overlooked little kid in the family. So he goes from that to king. And so there's some experiences in here that are vital to that. Um, In in chapter 16, after being anointed by Samuel, he is placed into the service of Saul. So he gets acquainted with with court life. Um, In chapter 17, that's the chapter where David ultimately kills Goliath. That puts him on everyone's political and social radar. Uh, he becomes a bit of a celebrity and he is given further opportunities to lead men and win military victories so he's familiar with the uh, Israel's war machine the, the key players there, generals and the like those are all important experiences for a future king to have um, and in chapter 18 he even becomes Saul's son-in-law so if you're going to talk about someone's rise to kingship those are all really valuable experiences and we see that here Um, but the majority of these chapters are sort of the persecution of David. David's experiences, his high point experiences, take a backseat to his low point experiences. Um, starting in chapter 18, after initiating the Bible's greatest bromance with Saul's son, Jonathan, uh, David becomes the target of Saul's fear and mistrust and the first of many, many attempts at murder, um. Starting in 19 uh, and moving uh, to chapter 30, David either begins either one long exile or two different exiles, depending on how you want to look at it. But basically, Saul ramps up his attempts to kill David, and David has to flee over and over and over and over again. It's not until chapter 24, where David spares Saul's life while he is going to the bathroom, um, that uh, Saul relents from pursuing David. (sighs) Two chapters later, Saul's at it again. He decides he's going to pursue David one more time, um, and uh, so starting in chapter 26, there's this either second uh, exile, uh, uh, fleeing period, or maybe it's a continuation of the first. It's not super clear, but either way, David's on the run again, and it's not until that David once again spares Saul's life that Saul relents. But at this point in time, David has wised up. He realizes. You know, fool me once, that's fine, but you're not going to fool me twice. Saul's going to come at it again. And so David leaves Israel and goes into the kingdom of the Philistines. So it isn't until chapter 31 that we actually see Saul's death and David have any opportunity really to return uh, to Israel. So 18 to 31 are really painful experiences for David. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you see the sense of David's rise, but also the sense of David's persecution. And so as we read these chapters, I'd suggest that we see them as a testimony of God's faithfulness of his promises to David to take him from shepherd and king, a faithfulness that is reflected both in the positive experiences he gives David, but also in his protection of David um, and um, uh, through the persecution of Paul. So, God being faithful to David both in his rise and his persecution, but that's the focus of these particular chapters. Now, There is a sub-theme, a third theme in these chapters that is worth pointing out. It's minor, but it's absolutely there, and that is David's fallibility. And this is going to become really important soon. Um, I say soon because I need to get there fast, but um, it's going to be important soon. Uh, But David's fallibility is, is pretty clearly on display in these chapters as well. Uh, David shows himself to have an Abraham-like tendency to lie to foreign kings. He shows himself as having a Jacob-like tendency to scheme and plot and come up with complicated scenarios. And he is inches away from committing murder to avenge himself over an insult. He is is saved um, at the last minute by the guy's wife, who he's about to murder, um, and, and she stops him. But ultimately, I mean, he's like, he's got his sword out. He's ready to crash a party and go kill some people. Um, so definitely a little focus on David's fallibility. And as I mentioned, this is going to become important later. But we're supposed to see, in addition to God's faithfulness, we're supposed to see David as ultimately a faithful man. Um, he is being set up as sort of the anti-Saul in a sense. But we're also seeing the seeds of the fact that David is, is he is not the king that israel needs he is a type of that king he is a shadow a pattern of that king he is the but he's a cloudy picture that ultimately points to christ just as my shadow might give you a sense of what i look like so too is david a shadow of jesus and i think the the author god is is ultimately planting a seed here that while david might be sort of the anti-saul he might be a picture of that true king of israel he is not himself the true king We need to look forward to a better and more certain ruler. But with that, we close the book. First Samuel's over, Saul's dead, Um, Samuel's dead, David is in exile, and and ultimately, it's it's kind of a sad ending. I mean, at the end of the day, Israel has made a sinful ask for a king. Um, They they got a king after their own hearts. Um, They've proven the need for a king after God's own heart who God has selected but has been living in exile for years because Israel has so far been ruled by the king that they deserve. Um, Now, as we transition into 2 Samuel, I'm going to pause. Any questions on anything in 1 Samuel? Tim. Something that amplify
1: what you're saying about David, that I think is really interesting about the way this is set up. So 20, you talked about the two times he spared Saul, 24 and 26. So both times he makes a choice and then throughout the Section, if you're making the choice, I'm not going to be vengeful. I'm not honored or anointed or anointed or salt. I'm not going to fight my own battle. Mm-hmm. So the incident in between is that, Abigail, in the where he almost falters in that. He almost does kill somebody just to avenge his own honor. And Abigail, in verse 28 of 25, I, it, I almost think, and this is to amplify your point about what's the big takeaway about David that points us to Christ. Maybe exactly. the, the key verse of 1 Samuel is where she says, Please forgive the trespass of your servants, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battle of Yahweh, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Subtext is, remember not to fight your own battles. Yeah. Fight Yahweh's battles. And he, he, he listens. So in my, it seems like that's sort of the focal point of the, at least the Saul, those Saul controversies point to this middle, like, this is the key thing, David, that you're, you're you've shown faithfulness here, don't fall there
0: Yeah. No, it's a great point. It's a great point. Any other comments, questions, issues? By the way, going back to just something I said, um, the idea that Saul is still the king, even though the kingdom has been taken away from him, is itself i think a pointer that the kingdom of god does not doesn't matter whose crown is on whose head it's not a matter of being ultimately something here and and physical and now it's this pointer to us that what really matters is who god selects who his anointed is regardless of what that might look like in practice on the earth now and that becomes really important you know in the new testament with jesus as well as you know his rule over the universe right now even though the church is a small number of people in the world and a persecuted body nonetheless god is on his throne and that's what really ultimately matters so um, i think saul's having the kingdom ripped from him and david being anointed as king and yet saul remaining as king is itself a picture of what we're experiencing even now under the rule of jesus in this world um, so again divine theater right all right, so let's move on then to Second uh, Samuel, or Part Two of Samuel. Um, and uh again three divisions for this book this would be uh three e uh specifically the davidic kingdom that's how what i'm titling uh, chapters one through ten um and at the end of the day this is all this is the high point this is this is this is the part of the story where david is going to be ruling israel and everything is just coming up roses this is this is the time that you want to live if you were going to pick a time frame in israel in these two books doesn't Quite start that way. Um, Saul is di- dead, um, but David doesn't automatically become king of Israel and Judah automatically. In chapter two, he is crowned king of Judah, but one of Saul's sons is crowned king of Israel. So we we see this the split amongst the people of God uh, between Israel and Judah, which is going to which is itself a foreshadowing what happens after Solomon. The kingdom is going to split up, and that's actually kind of thematic in these books. You start seeing this separation between Judah and the rest of Israel, especially in 2 Samuel. Um, there's a long civil war. That's almost a quote, chapter 3, verse 1. Long civil war. It ultimately ends in chapter 5, where Saul's son, Ishbosheth, is murdered by his own men. And finally, David is made the king of both Judah and Israel at the ripe old age of 30. Um, and between his time ruling Judah and then his time ruling Judah and Israel, his total reign is about 40 years. Um, and then chapters 5 to 10, this is, this is where it doesn't get any better. This is just David winning victory after victory after victory. Uh, he defeats the Philistines a lot. He captures his uh, the, he captures their idols in a reversal of what happens in 1 Samuel with the loss of the ark. Uh, he gets the ark back ultimately. Um, even the people who curse David are themselves cursed. I mean, the guy just can't stop winning. Um, 2 Samuel 5.10 is a really good summary of this. And that text reads, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. You know, remember one thing, remember that verse, David is just on an upswing. Um, Chapter seven is sort of the pinnacle, though. It's the climax of these chapters. This is the time where the Lord makes a covenant with David. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. Um, it's a really, really important thing. But ultimately, David is just, I think, overwhelmed with all the victories that he's been given, the blessing, the prosperity. And he says, I need to make a house for God. You know, God's living in a tent, essentially. I need to do something for him. And Nathan, the prophet, tells him, "Mm, God's going to make a house for you. Sit tight. And so, but we'll cover that in more detail in a little bit. Um, But ultimately, after that happens, again, more and more victories, David even has an opportunity to exalt the one surviving son of Jonathan, um, which, which makes him happy. And so at this point in the story, at the end of chapter 10, um, God has not only restored Israel under a righteous king, but he's also expanded Israel's prosperity to a point they haven't seen uh, in their history to date. Um, and so if you want to go back to that concept of divine theater, what Israel is experiencing here is a taste of what godly leadership looks like. That's what we're meant to see. This is a taste of what godly leadership looks like. Which is why the next section is so unbelievably tragic. Um, after the high, high, high points of those five chapters, you get 2 Samuel 11-18, to 18, which is the low point of David's rule. I uh, titled it David's Failures, and things take a major turn for the worse for the guy. Again, David is not Israel's true king. He is a shadow of Jesus, and so this period of blessing was never going to last. It was a picture, but it wasn't permanent. And as a sinful, fallible man, David falls, and he falls hard. This is where we see his adultery with Bathsheba, his attempt to trick the woman's husband into believing the child was his, and when that doesn't work, his arranging of Uriah's death. Uh, Not only does David sin directly in this way, um, but his polygamy comes back to bite him as well. One of his sons violates his half-sister and then further shames her, which leads to one of his other sons murdering that brother and then going into exile. And that itself then leads to a civil war within the kingdom when the brother who did the murdering, Absalom, essentially challenges david and israel is plunged into war father versus son the war does end with absalom's death um but my goodness i mean we read it it's just this tragic tragic tale it all points back to i think directly david's inability to be a one woman man so direction and sin and consequences all david's failures in these chapters finally the book concludes in 19 to 24 with david being restored as king and then we see the end of his life um he is restored as king he is clearly repentant but things aren't the same as they were before this is sort of like um i don't know like imagine buying a shiny new car that's that and enjoying it that's chapters five to ten Fast forward 15 years later, it, it, it kind of looks like the old car. You've kept it in good shape. You polished it, but it doesn't run the same. You don't have the same thrill. It doesn't go as fast. You know, check engine lights on. That's kind of what these these last chapters are, unfortunately, in the book. David's older. He's weary. He's actually told, dude, stop going out in battle. You're going to get yourself killed. Um, there's more rebellion, although that, that is stopped fairly quickly. Um, Israel is victorious and more fighting with the Philistines. But at the same point in time they have uh, years of famine three years of famine and the book ends with a pretty nasty uh, pestilence caused by David's sin um, in, in numbering the people so as we end 2 Samuel you know, we see that Israel has gotten a taste of what it means to be ruled over in righteousness but there is this necessary expectation that there's got to be something better around the corner the true king is not yet here. And that's where the story ends. Questions? Comments so far? Josh? Yeah, I
1: just thought it was really interesting, you were really uh, emphasizing how David, um,
0: he's not, like, really that great of a king, right? Like, Saul is just, like, complete garbage, he's not wise or godly, like, David is godly, but he's not particularly wise. We constantly see him like messing up, making bad mistakes, and then Solomon after him, he's wise, but he's not God. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And like the three laws for the kings, like don't multiply wives, gold, um, or uh, like horses. And like even before David's king, you already see him multiplying wives. Yep. So you're like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> like hold on, bro. Like, hold on, bro. <laughs> <laughs> is this interesting? Like, David, like, in my mind, I always picture him as like. He's like the greatest king. Like, yeah. He's the best. But even he is, is constantly making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And like, he really wasn't that great of a king. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's it's totally there in the text. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for highlighting that. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Patty. Can you talk a little bit about how David, David is labeled a man after God's own heart? Against all of this <laughs>
1: that we just talked about,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, that's that's certainly uh, probably a, a, a gracious statement uh, on God's part, um, but it is His words. In chapter thirteen, that's how He describes David to Saul. He says, "I'm taking the kingdom away from your dynasty. I'll give it to a man after my own heart." Um, and I think both in the context of the story and then reflected later in the uh, you know david's own uh, psalms i i think you you definitely see a man who does love god a man who endeavors to trust him who has trusted him for a long time um a man who is is bold a man who is um you know, desirous to be faithful. His heart is tender and repentant when he's called out on it. Um, you know, when Nathan comes and accuses him of his sin with Bathsheba, he doesn't fight. He, he, he breaks his heart immediately. And so you see all of the elements of a redeemed sinner. Um, but you still see the sinner. Um, and I think, in fairness to David, that sinful element is potentially highlighted to avoid the the impression that he is this perfect, amazing king and, you know, we just need another David. Um, we are always, always, no matter how good, no matter how faithful, no matter how zealous for God, what we need is the God-man Jesus. Does that answer your question? He does all of these bad things, but he could really quick be like, Oh, okay, yeah, that was bad. like Let me repent and move on. Yeah, we to, like, we kind of see that with yeah, like he does dumb stuff, <laughs> but then it's like when someone confronts him, he's like, Oh, you're right, like when you follow God, and he still bears consequences, but yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Eric,
1: you yeah, know, I was thinking about Saul, and I think from a secular, um, almost American leadership perspective he's a pretty good leader right i mean like he doesn't mess around like hey sacrifice doesn't happen let's make it happen right he capitulates the people ah, let's not wipe out all the email it's, look you know you guys want some of those goodies here let's like i mean actually from our perspective i mean obviously he's a terrible here right but uh <laughs> but but and, and then but we look at david's fallibility and i think all this stuff for me just kind of frames my expectations about what i should expect in leadership and I shouldn't expect much. I should be looking to God, ultimately, <laughs> you know. So anyway, I, I just—I mean, all this stuff points to a desire to see a true, you know, Christ ultimately. You know, the, the fallibility of these men, and, and this is the—I be- mean, David's the best of the best, right? <laughs> That's yeah. as good as it's going to get. Yeah, yeah. I vote for him. Yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> um, no, it's a good point. It's a good point, and we're—we're going to come back to that. Um, god willing in just a second on one of the themes in the book so let's let's transition there Uh, a couple of themes that are worth uh going through and i apologize for doing this quickly um but the first one there i just want to summarize the divine theater concept not the concept but sort of the picture painted in the book so that's clear um and i'm just going to read it because it's easier. God's people need a leader. I'm sorry, this is what what I think the message of this book, um, the way that God has orchestrated the events, this is the the takeaway that he wants us to see in this picture form of, 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 of history. God's people need a leader who can turn them from their sins to God, who can lead them in the way of righteousness, The selection and failure of Saul as king highlights the need not just for a central leader or authority, not just an impressive man to be in charge, but a man who loves God and trusts him above all else. David's selection and installation as king shows us a glimpse of what it means to be led by such a righteous man, but reminds us that no human being, however sincere and faithful, can ever truly succeed as the best of men will fail. What Israel needs and what God has promised is a true king, a descendant of David, himself God, to sit on David's throne forever. In these two books, God is advancing, ultimately, the narrative of redemption. And in these books, he is also introducing us to a really important element of that that plan of redemption, namely the kingdom of God. But in introducing that element he is pointing us to the fact that it is not ultimately a kingdom here and today ruled over by men. It will be a kingdom ultimately ruled over by him. Which is a good segue into the second theme that we see in this books over and over and over again. Um, what is clear when you read the books again, king, 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 king everywhere in here, right? The uh, In Samuel's birth story in chapter 2 his mom sort of does like a a song of praise. She mentions the king right there. Uh, Tim mentioned the repeated refrain in the book of Judges people did what was right in their own eyes for there was no king in Israel. We've talked about a king in the context of, of, of Israeli history uh, from Judges uh, to this book. It's on chapter 2 of the books, and then obviously we get to chapter 8, and there's a, there's a demand for a king, and the rest of it's all about the kingdom. King, 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 over and over and over again in these books, and yet it's clear that the real king is God. Um, when the people ask for a sinful, or make their sinful ask for a king in chapter 8, God's response is, they're attempting to reject me from being king over them, but he makes clear that he is the king. And no matter what happens in this story, no matter which human being is sitting on the throne, the, the, the books of First and Second Samuel made clear that Yahweh is still on his. When Israel is beaten by the Philistines, it's because God was punishing them. When Israel asked for a king, it only happened because the true king allowed it. When it came time to select that person, the people did not select the king of Israel did. Yahweh did. He selected the man. When Saul sinned, um, his rule was shown to be at the sole discretion of God. It was taken away from him. And it was Yahweh who decided that David's throne would last. The books of Samuel may focus on the kingdom, but we are constantly reminded in these book as to whose kingdom it really is. And that is important, I think, because of where we're going to go next in terms of themes, which is the Davidic Covenant. Um, Now, if you're looking at your notes, you will see a boatload of references there. Um, That is deliberate. I'll explain that in a second. Um, Because in a sense, the Davidic Covenant is pretty straightforward. It's really simple. Um, It's in 2 Samuel 7, and there's a couple of key features and promises that get made. Uh, First and foremost, that David will be given a great name. Uh, that God's people will dwell securely in the land at peace with their enemies entirely destroyed, that there will be an immediate heir for David, uh, who will build God's house, that's ultimately Solomon, and that the throne of David will be established forever, and that God will never remove his love from David's family. In essence, that's a plain reading of the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God makes with God. It is an unconditional covenant. God promised these things um, with, with no uh, obvious uh, requirements of David. It's just going to happen due to God's grace. Um, but while it's a simple thing in 2 Samuel 7, it's a major theme once we get out of that book. And so those references, you see most of those, if not all of them, are from the prophets. And so what we see later on in the Old Testament is folks looking back to this promise and and either explaining it or giving additional clarity to it or having new revelation that expands or, or, or um, indicates what God meant when he was giving it to David. And so the concept of the kingdom, the Messiah, all of it ties back to um, ultimately the Davidic covenant in a sense. And so there's a lot in the latter parts of the Old Testament that look back to this promise and expand on it. Um, These simple promises branch out and and grow into something massive, the kingdom of God ruled over by the Messiah. And so those references are just kind of some of the the many, many things out there in the Old Testament that are worth looking up um, as it relates to sort of interpreting the Davidic covenant. Um, And this is an important point to highlight at the end of the day going back to God being on his throne because the ultimate promise that God makes to David to sit a descendant on his throne is going to be fulfilled by Yahweh himself it is the God man Jesus who is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise just as we've said repeatedly a sinful however godly man is never enough there needs to be someone who is perfect and true and eternal and Yahweh who is the ruler over Israel who has made this promise to establish a kingdom forever is going to fulfill that promise by sitting himself on that throne for the good of his people God doesn't intend in making this promise to David um, uh, for for the ultimate fulfillment of that promise to be anything other than installing himself on the throne in Jesus Christ alright one more theme I'll pause for questions, and then we'll do some application. Um, And this one kind of goes back to what Eric was talking about, and it's this concept of of inner-outer man. Um, Over and over in these books, we are drawn uh, to an emphasis on the heart, or the inner man. Often, Uh, in juxtaposition to external elements, things like looks, stature, or abilities. Uh, One key place that we see this is actually in the various introductions of David and Saul. Um, In chapter nine, that's where Saul's introduced. And he is literally introduced as the best looking guy in Israel. Um, He's also introduced as a guy who's just like head up taller than anybody else. So think like Brad Pitt with Tyler's height, if that helps you. Like, that's Saul, right? That's who he is. He's a a big guy. He's a big guy. (laughs) Sarah and I spent time yesterday talking about how people were going to react to that, and I predicted that, Matt. I predicted Katie was going to say that, not you, but... Fair enough. Fair enough. We can just say Tyler, sure. (laughs) But anyway, so you get this, you get, you know, Saul is a a good looking, impressive guy. If you were going to kind of walk around and go, I want him to be king, that's who you'd pick. You'd pick that guy. He's really tall. Um, Whereas David is this, you know, he's a handsome guy, but he's this small red-headed, you know, shepherd. Um, But he's introduced, not in terms of his physical characteristics, he's introduced again in chapter 13 as a man after God's own heart. So you see this This distinction between David and Saul. Um, You see another very clear uh, internal external uh, paradigm in play with David and Goliath. Goliath is a terrifying person. If you were reliant on human strength and might and external characteristics, Goliath is the guy you want on your side. Even Saul is terrified of him. David is not. But not because David is impressive, but because he is reliant on God. David's heart and his faith ultimately triumph over the external characteristics, the impressive external characteristics of Goliath. His character is what matters in the end, not how big the biceps are and they were big Um, there are other areas where their hearts emphasize too in the book um, you know uh, uh, over and over again so Samuel calls Israel to repentance in chapter 7 he tells them to direct their hearts to the Lord he says something similar to his farewell address in chapter 12 um, because at the end of the book one of the themes again is the emphasis on who you are and and your, your your faith your character your inward man not simply externals including external behavior um and I so said, I think the theme uh, in, is, is here in these books because at the end, you know, the kingdom of Israel is going to be ruled over by a perfectly righteous king whose citizens are in his image and follow him sincerely from their hearts. That's where this ultimately is going in the new heavens and the new earth, a, a world in which the Lord Jesus is king and those citizens are wholehearted, redeemed members of the kingdom. All right, questions on those themes before we get into some basic application stuff?
1: Tip? Yeah, to underscore that inner outer, which is great, very Deuteronomic, give me your whole heart. But the Genesis, we saw the theology of reversals, and I'm thinking of Hannah, there's a big reversal there where outwardly she looked like the less fortunate wife, you know, but there's this in her song of praise which is very similar to Mary's prayer later on in Luke and there's Jesus coming but there's a reversal that's kind of flipping that inward outward thing you know, to show the true nature of God's will.
0: There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of pictures of this throughout the book. Um, not that the heart isn't elsewhere in the Old Testament. I, uh, I'm i just kind of curious, and so I just you know, did a quick word search on that thing. It just comes up everywhere, but prior to 1 uh, and 2 Samuel. So it's not as if, you know, this is all of a sudden in the Old Testament where the inward person matters. It's always mattered, but there is just this emphasis on it throughout these books. All right application I got 3 this first one is incredibly lazy low hanging fruit read the books read the books they're fantastic uh, not only are they rich not only have I just glossed over some uh, incredible content but they are legitimately entertaining too I defy you 1 Samuel chapter 21 verse 15 I defy you to find a funnier one line in the entirety of the Bible other than that one Don't turn them now on your own time <laughs> But 1 Samuel 21, 15, funniest line in the Bible, I think. They're entertaining, they're good, but they're also really important to the overall story of of the history of redemption. Uh, Second, obviously, uh, look forward to the true king. At the end of the book, Israel is left waiting for that promised future king, um, but we know who he is. We know who he is, and he is at the right hand of the Father right now, ruling the world, waiting to return and destroy his enemies once and for all, to establish us in the true promised land, to give us a true Sabbath rest, and to rule over us forever. So as Israel ends the book waiting, we have infinitely more information about what we're waiting for. And so just as they were meant to be expectant, so much more are we with hope and joy. And then lastly, this kind of gets to the inner outer man thing. This is, I think, also directly on point with what Eric was talking about, but less political, more church. Um, At the end of the day, look, in our culture, we prize people who are young, charismatic and attractive. That's who that's who we put on a pedestal Um, you can post a stupid TikTok video and get a billion followers and make a lot of money and be a faux influencer. Pretty simple in our culture. Um, we tend to like the people who are dynamic and charismatic and speak good and um, are easy to look at. That's that's kind of how we, we idolize in our culture. There is an emphasis on, on youth and beauty and the whole nine yards for, for both genders. Um, and in the church, it's easy or dangerously easy for us to follow that sort of worldly pattern but there's a reason why the qualifications for elders are character based and not primarily ability based Um, we ought to make sure that what we're focusing in on in terms of you know leadership and, and 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 the like is the davids and not and it's just a reminder, a simple reminder for us that um, our hearts can be easily inclined to, uh, you know, looking at people's gifts and abilities and not their character. And the church has suffered immensely over the years, forgetting that at times. Um, we need to make sure that we're, we're not being, uh, piercing ourselves with grief by following charismatic, uh, dynamic men over less flashy people who are passionate for Jesus think we're we're generally doing a good job there at this church but again always worth the reminder um with that i am going to pause we are right at time any questions comments lingering observations anything else worth closing on we can really rip it all apart in community groups tonight yeah that's a good point too yeah, absolutely in a good way. <laughs> absolutely all right well let's pray Father, thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you for the reminders in these books that you are on your throne, that you have promised that you will ultimately, ha- having seated Jesus on it, will bring about the, the culmination and the manifestation of the kingdom in physical form here one day. May we be looking forward to that. May we be enriched as we read both these books and the rest of the old testament lord with that expectation in mind knowing that it is a focal point for you so much that you've orchestrated these events as a picture to point us to the reality of jesus and the true kingdom and we, we thank you for this time i pray lord that it has fruit and that um, we would walk away with just a, a, a better more fruitful understanding in general of you and your word in his name father we pray